Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's word, fellowship, and prayer. Alrighty, so I am not the pastor of the college young adult class, and so our pastor's name is Brandon Briscoe. He's right over here. Uh, and if you're visiting, then I want to be the first to invite you back next week. So if you're visiting right now, this is the perfect time to be visiting our class because we're beginning a new series in the book of Ephesians. And if you've never studied the book of Ephesians, it's one of my favorite books in the Bible. And so you want to be here with us from the beginning as we walk verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the book of Ephesians. Uh, my name is Miles Cheadle. I'm the director of Friends of Internationals. And so um, I lead a group of people that go out of their way to show themselves friendly uh, to people from all over the world, right? The nations are coming to Kansas City for various reasons, uh, many seeking an education. And our goal is to go out of our way to, to love people, to befriend people, to minister to people that come from different backgrounds uh, than we do. And we're trusting God for opportunities to share Christ's love, to share the gospel, because the gospel is, it's a transforming message. Like it has the power to take you from a kingdom of darkness and death to a kingdom of light and life. And so that's a message we're sharing and we don't wanna keep it to ourselves and we've got a commission to share it with the world. And so, man, we're trusting God for that through Friends of Internationals. And so if you've been coming, uh, then, you know, to Kaya, to MBT, I want to encourage you to join us. So September 9th is our annual welcome party. And this is a time where all students are coming in, they're getting settled in, and we just have a, an opportunity to, to, to open up our home and, and to love on them, to invite them for food, for fellowship. And it's a great way for us to intentionally build relationships and friendships, right? And so come September 9th, if you're like, man, you know, I would. Well, I mean, just clear your schedule. Be there, right? Come serve, bring food. Uh, we need all the help that we can get. Uh, and then, so we've got a team that's en route to Vietnam right now. And so if you aren't, if you don't have one of these, I encourage you to go back to the main building after service, uh, grab one of these cards, put it somewhere visible in your home, uh, because one of the things that we get to do is we get to support our family through prayer. And you guys need reminders, because you know this life, it gets busy, things get crazy, and it's out of sight, out of mind. And, and we can't afford for, for us as a ministry to not be lifting up our brothers and sisters that are inconvenient to themselves by, by selling all their possessions, moving halfway across the world to be a part of God's mission. Like, we've got to back them in prayer. And so let's continue to be praying for Pastor Andrew Wong and for the team that's moving to Vietnam even right now. All right? So today we're going to shift gears a little bit, and we're going to be in Joshua chapter 20. And it's a, really, it's a, a very simple message, but I believe it's urgent, uh, particularly in light of the, the school semester starting. Uh, you know, students are going to be back on campus. We're going to be seeing a lot of visitors into our ministry, Lord willing. And it's imperative for us to understand uh, really the, these very simple concepts that we're going to discover today through the book of Joshua. And so this message, it's, it's for you, right? It's not for your neighbor, it's for you. It's imperative that we understand that God desires to be our refuge. 
God desires to be our refuge. And as the body of Christ, he desires for us as a ministry to be a refuge for those in need. Right? God, he is my personal Lord and Savior, and he wants to be your refuge, a present help in time of need. And yet, as a church, we're going to learn this in Ephesians. Ephesians 4, we're going to see what the church is. But man, we're called to be the body of Christ. And as Christ's body, this place, it has to be a refuge to a lost and dying world, right? And so whenever we come, this is not an all-inclusive resort. You're like, what? There's coffee, there's donuts, there's good music. I get a message and then I get to go on my way and have lunch. Like, this is the best country club in the world. And no, that's not what this is, right? I'm glad that there's community. I'm glad that there's fellowship here. Uh, But this, it's not a resort. Uh, This place, it's called to be a place of refuge. Again, there is a lost and dying world that needs safety and protection. And our job is to see those in need to invite them to come in and to dwell with us. And today, we as a ministry need to understand who we are so that as the semester gets rolling, we can walk in light of that. And so does it turn to Joshua chapter 20? Do you guys have that? Do you have a Bible? Joshua chapter 20. In this chapter, we're going to find six cities that are known as cities of refuge. And that word refuge, it means to offer safety, to offer shelter, from the pursuit of danger or trouble. And as we study these six cities, they're going to become a type or a picture for us of how we find our refuge in the person of Christ. And again, this is a very relevant message today because we live in maybe the most fearful generation that has ever existed, right? When we look at our generation, we are scared of ourselves. We wrestle with our identity We're scared of what people think of us. We're we're crippled by social anxiety. We're scared of the economy, right? You're like, oh man, what's it gonna do? What's, David, what's gonna happen to to the housing market? Are we gonna be able to buy a house? Like, who knows? Scared of the economy. We're scared of politics. We're scared of, of the police. Like, what if the police are here? But then we're scared if the police aren't there. Like, man, scared of the police when they're present, and then we're scared when they're not there. We're scared of the government. We're we're scared of wars. We're scared of the previous generation. Like, what do they know? Uh, But then we're scared of the generation to come. We're scared of famines and food shortages. We're scared to love and we're terrified to be loved. We're the most fearful generation that this world has ever known. And despite all of this, God wants you to know that there's safety, there's shelter, There's protection in the person of Christ. And we're going to examine some keys to this in Joshua chapter 20. So as the children are entering into Israel, they're coming into this land of promise. And we see that Joshua, he's dividing the land for an inheritance. And so he's parsing out the land to the different tribes. And at the very end of this practice, as Joshua is parsing out the land and giving it as an inheritance to the different tribes of the nation of Israel... God reminds Joshua of a conversation that he had with Moses. So Moses and God had this conversation about appointing six cities before the whole nation, and these cities would serve as cities of refuge. 
So in verse one, it says, the Lord also spake unto Joshua saying, speak to the children of Israel, saying, appoint out for you cities of refuge, whereof I spake unto you by the hand of Moses, that the slayer that kill that killeth any person unawares and unwittingly may flee thither, and they shall be your refuge from the avenger of blood. And so this is sort of a, I mean, it's a strange passage in the canon of Scripture, uh, but it's not one that we can overlook. It's not one that we can afford to miss. You know, one of the things that we learn as we study the Bible is that God uses repetition. Whenever God is repeating something over and over and over again, it's because he doesn't want you to miss it. In these cities of refuge, we find them mentioned over and over and over again in the Scriptures. In five different passages, in Numbers 35, in Deuteronomy 4, in Joshua 20 and 21, in 1 Chronicles 6, he brings up these cities of refuge over and over again throughout the canon of Scripture. Forty-six times that word refuge is mentioned in the Bible, and 20 of those 46 times are, are mentioning a city in refuge. And so again, these cities, they can't be missed in the context of our Bible. And here in Joshua 20, the author starts by highlighting the significance of what's to come. The author starts by saying, the Lord spake. And any time we hear that, that God is speaking, well, we should be listening, right? And so as soon as we see the Lord spake, we should pause and like turn on our listening ears, right? God, all right, you're speaking. I'm listening. What do you have for me? God is speaking. God goes on to put Joshua in remembrance of these cities of refuge, and he outlines the purpose of these cities. And so basically, if a man kills someone unawares or on accident, like this is manslaughter, right? I didn't mean to do it. I accidentally hit you with my car. Like you killed someone unawares on accident, then you're supposed to hightail it. Immediately you start running and start fleeing for one of these six cities. And in these cities, you find refuge from the avenger of blood. Like, that's the most metal thing, I think, in the entire Bible. The avenger of blood, right? But, uh, you know, it sounds like a crazy idea. But, but these practices, even in some other parts of the world, I mean, they, they still are in play, right? This is an honor-shame culture. And so this idea of avenger of blood, it means if you killed my brother then I have to avenge the honor of my brother. And so if you take his life, I got to take yours, even if it was an accident, right? It's blood for blood, blood for blood. And so this is no joke. The idea is if someone killed my brother on accident or on purpose, then it's my right and responsibility as, as the avenger of blood, which is actually the same word is translated as kinsman, right? It's my responsibility to take your life. And so this is a big deal. So in the case of manslaughter, you're supposed to run for one of these cities, and there you'll find safe haven, you'll find protection, and you won't be given over to this avenger of blood. In verses 4 through 6, it outlines the protocol. So what do we do, right? I accidentally killed a man. I come to the city. What do I do whenever I get to the city? In verse 4, it says, And when he that doth flee unto one of those cities... So stand at the entering of the gate of the city and shall declare his cause to the ears of the elders of that city. And they shall take him into the city with them and give him a place that he may dwell among them. 
And if the avenger of blood pursue after him, then they shall not deliver the slayer unto his hand, because he smote his neighbor unwittingly and hated him not before time. And he shall dwell in that city until he stand before the congregation for judgment and until the death of the high priest that shall be in those days. Then shall the slayer return and come unto his own city and to his own house, unto the city from whence he fled. And so let's review this. You accidentally kill a man, like, oops, <laughs> killed him, sorry, and then immediately you're running, right? You're, you're panting, you're sobbing, like you accidentally killed a man and you didn't mean to do that. You're, you're gasping for air, but you know that you needed to make it to the city before someone else takes you out. You're running for your life. Like this would be, be crazy. It would be a million thoughts swirling in your head. Like I left like the pizzas in the oven. Like, I don't know, like what did I leave behind me? My family's home and I, I didn't even have time to communicate this message to them. I've got to book it before someone takes off my head. And so, you know, we learn a few things that happen upon entering the gates of the city. And so the, the, the next slide, the first thing that we do whenever approaching this city is you declare your case to the elders at the gate. So you killed a man, you run to the city, and the first thing that you do, again, you're going crazy, tons of ideas, thoughts swirling in your head, you're running for your life, you're exhausted, you're panting, you're tired, and the first thing that you do is, help me, right? I need refuge. You declare your case to the elders at the gate of the city. The second thing that you do is that you enter the city and these elders, the people of the city, are gonna protect you from harm. And so even if that avenger of blood is behind you, they're gonna bring you into the city and they're not gonna give you up to the avenger of blood. The third thing that you do is you live in that city until a proper hearing is organized. And so once you come into the city, they're gonna give you dwelling, they're gonna allow you to live amongst them until they can organize a proper hearing to see if you were actually guilty of killing a man purposefully or if it was actually just accidental manslaughter. The fourth thing that you do is if you are innocent and it was actually an accident, you actually have to live in that city until you die or the high priest dies. You don't get to go back home. That is now your home until either you die or the death of the high priest. And if the high priest dies before you do, then after his death, you get to return home as a free man. It's a crazy passage, right? It's like, man, why'd God give a whole chapter in the Bible, multiple chapters in the Bible to these cities? This is crazy. Next, verses 7 through 9, uh, we see that God identifies these six cities in the passage. They appointed Kadesh in Galilee and Mount Naphtali, and Shechem, and uh, Mount Ephraim, and Kirajatharbara, uh, which is Hebron, in the mountain of Judah, and the other side of Jordan by Jericho, eastward, they assigned Bezer in the wilderness unto the plain out of the tribe of Reuben, and Ramoth and Gilead out of the tribe of Gad, and Golan and Bashan out of the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities appointed for all the children of Israel, for the stranger that sojourneth among them, and whosoever killeth any person at unawares might flee thither and not die by the hand of the avenger of blood until he stood before the congregation. 
And so here in verses 7 through 9, God identifies six cities of refuge. He picks Kadesh, Shechem, Hebron, Bezer, Ramoth, and Golan. And I've got a map right here just so you can see visually where these cities would be located in the context of Israel. And so clearly these cities, they weren't chosen randomly or by accident. God strategically chose each of these six six cities. Uh, And, you know, as we study the map, we can see that they're strategically located so that they could be accessible to all people, right? And so they've got three on either side of the Jordan River. Kadesh is in the northwest We've got Hebron in the southwest, Shechem is central to the west, Ramoth is central to the east, Bezer is southeast, and Golan is northeast. And so again, these cities are strategically located so that one is within reach of everyone no matter where they live in the land. So no matter where you are in the land, there's one within a half day's journey of you. They're strategically located cities to be accessible to all. These cities are strategically located in high elevations. So you can't really see it here. You can, as we're reading the passage, it points out that these places are are mountains. Like these are high elevated areas. So if you had a topographical map, it's kind of neat to look at. And you can see that each of these cities, they reside on a hilltop or on a mountaintop. And so topographically, they're, 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 they're at high elevations. And it's beautiful because they're clearly seen from a distance, right? So if you need to make it to these cities, you can look up and you can see exactly where you're running to. And third, these cities are strategically chosen as Levite cities. And we see this in Numbers 35, verses 6 through 7. Uh, but we, you know, the tribe of Levi is unique in that they don't receive an inheritance in the land. And so whenever they come into the land, they don't receive an inheritance. Instead, what's given to them are 48 cities. So they're given 48 cities to reside on, and those 48 cities are scattered throughout the entire land, right? In each of the tribes, there's different cities that are given to the Levites. And six of those 48 cities are listed as these cities of refuge, right? Six of those cities that are given to the tribe of Levi are listed right here as cities of refuge. And so again, God was very intentional in his choice of these cities, He chose them to be accessible places for comfort and refuge for all people. Like in the midst of maybe the most precarious situation that you'll ever find yourself in, these cities, they're near and close to you. These are cities are meant to be a protection and a haven to preserve life and to be a beacon of grace. And this is such a big deal that God makes this clear before they ever enter the land. And so as we continue to study we learned that although these cities are real historical places and they served a real historical function, they also serve to us as a picture, as a type. And the worst thing that could happen is that you leave today with the realization that if I kill someone, I just need to buy a ticket and go to Israel and I can run to one of these cities and I'll have protection, right? If that's what you walk away with, then Brandon's never going to invite me to preach again. Right? And so that's not the point for us. The point for us isn't that there are six literal cities that provide protection for us. I mean, if you go back to an Old Testament dispensation, sure. Today, this is not the function for our lives. And so, you know, these cities, although they picture a physical protection, a physical refuge, they point to a spiritual refuge for our soul. 
They point to a spiritual refuge for our soul. And so now that we've established a historical context for these cities, let's look again with spiritual eyes and see what God wants to teach us from this passage. So we left off our conversation that these six cities are Levite cities. These six cities are Levite cities. In the tribe of Levi, they were not given an inheritance in the land. Instead, they received 48 cities scattered throughout all of Israel. And these six cities happen to be included in that number. And so Levi, he was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. He's one of the 12 sons of, of Israel. And he is the national head. He, he represents a tribe within the context of Israel. And one of the really you know, defining moments in Levi's life, and subsequently the, the, the tribe of Levi, took place in Genesis 34. In Genesis 34, we see that Levi's sister, Dinah, was raped in the city of Shechem. And it was tragic. And against the will of his father, Levi and Simeon went into that city seeking vengeance and retribution by killing all the men in the city of Shechem. It is one of the most gruesome passages in our entire Bible. They go in and they slay all of them. Genesis 34 verses 25 through 27 says, And it came to pass on the third day when they were sore that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brethren took each man his sword and came upon the city boldly and slew all the males. And they slew uh, Hamer and Shechem his son with the edge of the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went out. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and spoiled the city because they had defiled their sister. And so we see that Shechem, this place, is where Levi went and slayed all the men of the city of Shechem. So in response to this act, we get, I mean, really an insightful explanation for why the tribe of Levi has no inheritance in the land. By the time we get to Genesis 49, we see that Jacob, Levi's son, or Levi's father, is on his deathbed. And on his deathbed, he invites all of his sons to gather around him. And, and as a good father, He's imparting his last words to his sons, and he's blessing them. And for some of them, he curses, actually. And Levi would be on the end of sons that receive not necessarily a blessing from their father, but a curse. What's said of Levi at this judgment seat of Jacob, as Jacob is addressing his son before he takes his last breath, is Simeon and Levi are brethren. Instruments of cruelty are in their habitations, O my soul, come not thou into their secret, unto their assembly mine honor. Be not thou united, for in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they dig down a wall. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And so we see that that in Genesis 49, Jacob's parting words to his son is, man, your anger is a problem, right? And man, your future will be scattered in Jacob and Israel. And we see this curse come to fruition. The tribe of Levi, they're scattered throughout the land. And their story is, it's an ironic one, right? There's irony and there's redemption in it as well. Because Shechem, this place of the massacre in Genesis 34, 
it's now listed as one of these cities of refuge. Right? It's now listed as one of these cities of refuge. And God allowed Levi, who was defined by anger, by retaliation and murder, to become a tribe that's now defined by grace and compassion. Hey, this is where you slew an entire city, and now this will be your home where you welcome killers and extend to them grace and mercy. It's beautiful. But it doesn't end there. The second important thing to note about the tribe of Levi is that this is a priestly tribe. In Exodus 28, we see that Aaron and his sons are set apart for temple worship. In Exodus 32, as the entire nation of Israel is worshiping a golden calf, we see that the tribe of Levi respond to Moses' call to stand by him and with God. And maybe in the book of Numbers, we see most clearly the statements that, that God is setting apart this, this tribe of Levi for this priestly work. In Numbers chapter 1, verses 47 through 50, it says, But the Levites after the tribe of their father were not numbered among them. For the Lord has spoken unto Moses, saying, Only thou shalt not number the tribe of Levi, neither take the sum of them among the children of Israel, but they shall be appointed, but thou shalt appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of testimony, and over all the vessels thereof, and over all things that belong to it. They shall bear the tabernacle and all the vessels thereof, and they shall minister unto it, and shall encamp around about the tabernacle. In Numbers chapter 3, verses 11 through 13, it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, And I, behold, I have taken the Levites from among the children of Israel, instead of all the firstborn that open, openeth the matrix amongst the children of Israel. Therefore the Levites shall be mine, because all the firstborn are mine, for on the day that I smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I hallowed unto me all the firstborn in Israel, both man and beast. Mine shall they be, I am the Lord. And as we continue to read the book of Numbers, we, we see so clearly that God has set aside this, this tribe of Levi for, as a priestly class and to do a priestly work. And so, you know, we stated earlier that these cities are strategically chosen as Levite cities, but understanding who Levi was and the history tied to the tribe of Levi makes this such a more impactful fact. The Levites were people set apart, given to the law, to temple worship, and to God as priests. And so these were holy cities set apart and sanctified for a special work. And God equipped them with the ministers necessary for that work. Also, these cities, they were defined by grace. Both the Levites, the inhabitants of the city, right? This is a testimony of God's grace on their life. But also for all those seeking refuge in these cities. These cities become a testimony of grace for everybody involved. But what does this have to do with us, right? Again, we're, we're listing out all these facts, and they're cool, but if it's not practical, it's not preaching, and so, you know, we're talking about all these things, but what's it have to do with me, Miles? And you're asking the right questions, right? In 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 5 and, and 9, we see these incredible statements. In verse 9, it says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. And in verse 5, it says that we we're called to be a holy priesthood. These are defining aspects of, of who we are in Christ. And so if you know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, 
then one of your identities is that you're identified in this priesthood of believers. And that's beautiful. Like, that is awesome. And what defines this, one of the beautiful things about being identified as a priesthood of believers is the fact that we have direct access to God. Right? I don't have to go through some priest, through some other person to get access to God. I've got direct access to him now. Right? I get to lead and worship to God. Right? I'm responsible for knowing the law, for knowing his word. These are awesome. We get to make spiritual sacrifices to the Lord. This is what it means for us to be a royal priesthood of believers. And so the book of Revelation, it reiterates these points, and we see this principally through all the Pauline epistles. You see, as priests, we have access to God, and we have the ability to make offerings to the Lord. And so devotionally, as God is addressing a Levitical priesthood, there are often principles and, and, and spiritual parallels to the life of any Christian believer. And so as we're looking through the Old Testament and seeing God talking about all these priests, and it's like, uh, you know, you're just rolling your eyes so much. No, God's got a word for you in there as well. There are spiritual principles and parallels that God wants us to see and to start applying into our lives today. And so Levi, he was guilty of wrath, Right? He killed a man. No, he killed a city of men. And then he turned around a few chapters later, and he killed his brother. Well, not literally, but he would have killed Joseph, right? They were ready to slay their own brother, but they were more greedy than they were bloodthirsty, and so they just sold him into slavery instead. So Levi, he doesn't have the best track record, right? Killing people, killing cities, selling his brother into slavery. He is guilty of wrath. And the reality is that every Christian is a sinner guilty before our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're guilty of his innocent blood. His blood is on our hands. He died for our sins, for our transgressions. And so just like Levi, I mean, that's our identity as well. Man, Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 6 says, And ye hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin, wherein in times past you walked according to the course of this world, According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also ye all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath. You know that that's your nature? That's who you were? You were defined by being a child of wrath. But God, but God. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together in Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so just as Levi was defined as a child of wrath, well, that was our identity, right? And so in that way, Man, we see the redemption story of Levi is true of our lives as well. We see that God met Levi with grace. Levi didn't deserve any place in the promised land. And yet we see him allocate 48 cities to the tribe of Levi. And then further, God says, hey, I'm going to give you an inheritance, but it's not a land. I am your inheritance. Wow. 
what, God? God says, yeah, Levi, I'm going to give you myself. I will be your inheritance. What a beautiful promise. And now, though you don't deserve it, I'm going to make you a tribe of people that's defined by worship and consecration to me. That's a holy people. And that continues to be a beacon of grace for the whole nation. Why? Because people can find refuge in your city. Whoa, this is good, right? This is incredible. And so God met Levi with grace. And every Christian, I mean, we're saved by grace, right? By grace, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. And next we see that Levi is empowered by God to minister grace to others. And as Christians, we have been handed a ministry of reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we see this very, very clearly. If you are a Christian, then God has shown his grace on your life. And he wants to use you to minister to others. Just like Levi. Man, God showed grace. This is, grace means undeserved favor. All of you are sinners. Surprise, surprise. You're like, wow, you're calling me out. Yeah, all of us are sinners. All of us have done horrible things, atrocities before a holy and a righteous God. And yet, God laid down his life loving us. And in doing so, we enter into this beautiful relationship with Christ. And he says, serve me. Right? Man, I laid down my life for me, for you. And so why won't you just live in light of that reality? Because my grace was extended to you, and I want you to be a minister of grace to a lost and dying world. Will you? Will you? And so we see these beautiful, beautiful pictures and types in the tribe of Levi and these priestly believers. God has blessed you to be a blessing to others. And this is crucial for us to understand, particularly with the fall semester coming. Will you join us in the ministry? Right? I said this, this isn't a, an all-inclusive resort. Right? This is a refuge. And so we need Levites, we need priests to join in the ranks to see a lost and dying world and to make sure that they know that they have a room, that they have a home to dwell with us, right? to come and join us. Will you join in that work? We can't afford to phone it in. We can't afford just to sleep in on Sundays, to attend services with no expectation to, to give yourself to the ministry. God has called you to a great work, and so don't ignore the call. Man, every Sunday, every day of the week, every Tuesday, during Bible study, God has called you to be a minister. Are you showing up with that mentality? Are you just showing up to be served? Man, come and join the work. And why? You're like, man, Miles, what are you talking about? You know, what do you know? You're just a guy with the microphone on his soapbox. You just want this so, you know, so you don't have to do as much work. It's like, no, that, that's not it at all, right? This has nothing to do with me. It's actually for your own sake. You see, God has called you to this, and so one, you need to be obedient. But also, you need to be involved in ministry because it is a constant reminder of the grace that God has extended to you. That's the real thing. Do you know that God laid down his life for you? And that as you involve yourself in the work of ministry, you're going to be reminded every day of the grace that God extended to you, right? You need to be involved in this work because you can't forget what God did for you. You can't forget it. You can't lose sight of that. It's so important. <clears throat> and so let's consider these uh, 
these points about being a, a holy priesthood of believers? You see, God clearly marked these cities of refuge for all to know. He, he clearly identified it in this passage and multiple passages. He, he set them apart. They were holy. He put them at high elevations. There, there are signs throughout the land pointing to these cities of refuge. And so are you set apart? Are you holy is the question. To be holy means to be set apart. And we're called to be a peculiar people. We're called to be in the world, but not of the world. We ought to stand out. We ought to be peculiar. And if we do, if, if we are set apart, if we're peculiar, if we're different, if we're not a part of this world, well, where do you think people will turn when the way of this world's not working out for them? Oh, man, this world course, this world system, it is not working out for me. Are they going to turn to someone else that, that looks like the world, that, that feels like the world, that sounds like the world? Or are they going to turn to someone that's different, that's set apart, that's holy, that, that operates outside of this world system? That's why you need to be peculiar people. <laughs> Where are they going to turn? Here, the people could clearly see these places that are marked cities of refuge. The people see that in your life. Do they know that they can find refuge and peace, that you are different than this world? Will you be a person that people think of? Will they run to you? You know, I think about Andrew Wong. You know, he's on his way to, to Vietnam right now. And uh, I had the privilege of doing Brian Q's wedding. And, you know, part of preparing for that was just conversations about his life, his upbringing, and just what God's done in his life up to, until this point. And, and one of the things that he really camped out on was how he met Andrew Wong. So Andrew picked him up from the airport. It was the first face that he met in the United States. And, and Brian's testimony was that, that Andrew was weird. Like there was something different about him. He couldn't place it. Like, not like in a mean way, but it's like, man, this guy is different. But it was so compelling, despite the fact that he was weird, he knew there was something so genuine about his love, so genuine about his faith, that he needed just to stick around him to figure it out. And guess what? That was the sign that Brian needed to come close to Jesus. And Andrew was able to lead him to the Lord, and now he's a faithful minister in, in our midst. Right? Man, what a beautiful testimony of peculiar people. Two... We see that there were elders at the gates of the city ready to hear and receive those in need of help. And so if this is your ministry, are you standing at the gates of the city? That's where the leaders should be. The gates control what come in and what goes out of the city. And as we study scripture, we see that the elders, they sit at the gate of the city. We find Boaz in the book of Ruth sitting at the gates of the city. We find Lot, unfortunately, sitting in the gates of the wrong city in Sodom and Gomorrah. And we find the husband of a virtuous woman in Proverbs 31, 23. It says, he is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. And so as leaders in this ministry, you should be watchful for those coming in and seeking refuge. You know, I point this out because although leaders should be positioned at the gates of the city, it's way more convenient. Sometimes it's more fun. Sometimes it's easier to be in the city center, right? Man, why would I want to be on guard at the gates of the city when I can just go hang out with the same people that I talk to every single Sunday, right? Why would I want to meet a new visitor or a new person 
where I can just chop it up with my buddy that I've been talking to for the past five years on Sunday mornings. This is cozy. This is convenient. This is familiar. Man, God has called us, particularly leaders in Kaya, to be on guard at the gates of the city. We should be watchful. We should know and acknowledge when visitors are coming into our ministry. We should be sitting, waiting, anticipating, watching that so that we can grab them if they need help, if they're seeking refuge to say, hey, we'll take you in. You've got a home here. As the fall semester comes, guys, we're going to see a lot of visitors. We're going to see people from different campuses that are coming into our ministry. Who are the leaders going to be at the gates of the city, anxious, prayerful, waiting to receive them, to hear them, to help them? I'm so thankful for the testimony of people in this ministry. I think of uh, Jacqueline Cribb. Uh, not too long ago, Martha Kodrowski, uh, she gave a testimony uh, that she was at the end of church. She had been to you know, a number of different churches uh, and just felt distant from God, wasn't able to plug in. Uh, all the churches say that she wasn't qualified for ministry. She wanted to serve the Lord with her life, and there was just no place for her anywhere. Uh, you know, she came from a church that was small, and after attending there for a number of years, you know, no one even knew her name. And she was just defeated. And she said to the Lord, all right, we're going to try out Midtown. If this doesn't work, then we're done. <laughs> you know, we're, we're giving up. And she said her first Sunday, she came into Midtown, and Jacqueline saw her and said, hi, my name is Jacqueline. What's your name? And she just couldn't believe that someone saw her, Right? She came in and someone was ready to, to greet her, to ask her her name, to make sure that she felt welcome. And it, it meant everything to her. And man, I'm so thankful because Martha is one of the sweetest sisters and ministers in our entire body. But man, someone was ready to see her, to receive her, to make sure that she knew that she was seen and that she had a home here in ministry. And it meant the world to her. Man, we gotta be on guard. There are people that are hurting and we don't even know the half of their story. Would you be ready? Would you be willing? Would you be able to sit down and just to listen, to show yourself friendly? Three, we should go out of our way. You know, this should be without saying, but we have a responsibility to protect those that join us. And so we should go out of our way to offer them a home in our midst, right? How are you going out of your way to ensure that visitors know that they are welcomed, loved, and have a home here? And so Brandon invited me to, to Midtown, uh, you know, my, my freshman year of college. And I didn't know what I was doing. I was figuring out life. Um, and I came here, and there's a guy named Montana Rex. And Montana made it a point just to, to love me, to make sure I knew that I was welcome, and to invest in me. Once a week, we'd grab coffee at dark o'clock in the morning, and we'd go to the filling station before it was bad. It used to be good. Now it's garbage. But anyways, we, we go to the filling station. We get our coffee. We get our cinnamon roll. And we just dive into the book of John. We just walk through the Bible. Why? I, I don't know. Like, I didn't know anything. You know, at that point, you know, John the Baptist and John the Apostle could have been the same person for all I knew. But, man, Montana, he just wanted to meet with me, to walk with me, to be my brother. You know, the first few times we went, he even bought my coffee and cinnamon roll. And then after a few times, he's like, all right, you can buy your own, you know. <laughs> But man, I knew that I was loved. I knew that I had a home here in ministry. 
he went out of his way to make sure that I knew that this was my home and that, he had bro- that I had brothers to, to walk alongside. And it met the world. It helped me get established. And so as a priesthood of believers in a city of refuge, we have a responsibility. Do you see that? Like if this is your home in ministry, then you have a responsibility. If this is a place of refuge, then you are a priest and you've been called to a mighty work and you have to engage. But if you don't know this is your job, then how are you ever going to step up to the call? God has a calling on your life. He wants you to be plugged into the work. He wants you to be plugged into the work. We're going to shift our gears here uh, kind of as we, we, we come to a close. I want you to see that, that God has called this place. He called this church to, to be a place of refuge. Uh, but the ultimate place of refuge is actually in the person of Christ. The ultimate place of refuge is in the person of Christ. So I want you to see that God desires, you know, in setting up these cities of refuge, he's concerned with life. And that's something that we see from the very beginning. His concern coming into the promised land is how can I preserve life? Wow, that, that's the character of my God. He's concerned with preserving life. And so I don't know who needs to hear this. I don't know what you're going through, but God sees you. God cares for you, and he desires to save your soul. Like the the deepest part of you, the part of you that exists forever, he desires to save your soul. And so notice that the first thing that he does whenever they enter into this promised land is create a way for grace and mercy to become accessible to all people, to preserve life, even for those who took someone else's. This is the depths of my God's grace. And as we seek personal application in our lives, we can't miss it. God desires to be our refuge. In the book of Hebrews, it makes it very, very clear that Jesus Christ is greater. Right? You read this book, and he's greater than the angels, and he's a greater sacrifice, and he's a better high priest. He's got a greater covenant. And y'all, Christ, he is a greater refuge. In Psalm 46, verse 1 It says that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. In Proverbs 18, verse 10, it says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it and is safe. In Psalm 62, verses 7 through 8, it says, In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times. When? All times, no matter what you're going through, trust in him at all times. You people pour out your hearts before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Ah, that's my God. In Mark chapter four, we see the disciples crossing, you know, the sea and they're in the midst of this terrible storm. And they say, Jesus, don't you care? And what's he do? He speaks to the storm and says, peace, be still. And immediately, oh man, that's my God. Do you seek him in the storm of your life? He wants to provide a refuge for you. So these cities, they point to God, but more specifically to the person of Jesus Christ. There are six cities, and as you study the scripture, you can't miss the fact that six is the number of man. And so while these cities, there are places of physical refuge, of physical salvation, the true picture points to a seventh place of refuge in the person of Jesus, who is able to save not just the physical part of you, but the soulish part of you. 
And so our last personal application for this passage is that God has called this ministry to be a place of refuge. But this ministry of refuge will never be true until you personally find your refuge in the person of Christ. And so let's look one last time at these cities of refuge and just see how they in type and picture point us to the ultimate person of refuge in Christ. First, these cities are a specific place. And so what I mean by that is that God appointed these cities and he didn't leave it to the discretion of Jacob or to, the, or to Joshua or to the tribes. They were divinely chosen by him. These cities, they didn't change or rotate every few years. They were clearly marked specific cities with specific functions. You couldn't run just to any city gate and plead your case. It had to be a city of refuge. Does that make sense? Like you couldn't just run to any city and find refuge there. There were six cities clearly marked for all to see, for all to know, and that's where you found refuge. There's a specific place for you to go. In a similar manner, God appointed Jesus as the only shelter for sinners. There is one way. John 14, 6, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And this is big. In this age of relativity, where everyone is professing their own way, where everyone has their own truth, according to Scripture, according to Jesus, there is an exclusive way, and it's through the person of Christ. Matthew 7, 13 through 14 says, Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat. But straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life. And few there be that find. Few there be that find. Guys, God is full of grace and mercy. God saw all of us and that we were destined to hell, to separation from him because of the weight of our sin. And God loved us so much that he died in our place. You see, Jesus, he was fully God, and he was fully man, and he descended into the human condition. He put on flesh and allowed his own creation to crucify him for your sake, for my sake. Because the wages of our sin, it's death, and someone had to pay that price. And so Jesus paid the price with his own blood that you might have his life. Straight is the gate, narrow is the way that leadeth to life. And it's through the person of Christ. And this is not a proud statement. This is not a bigoted statement. This is not a closed-minded view. There's just no other person in the history of humanity who lived a sinless life and willingly laid it down that had the capacity to save the entire world. Like, point to another person. Oh, wait, like, Say a name. They don't fulfill like, these qualifications. And so if this is new to you, or even if this is hard to digest, that there is one way to the Father. Man, I'd love to meet with you afterwards to show you the greatest display of love and grace that this world has ever seen. Right? It's worth it to have a true and a right relationship with him. Next, these cities are a display of God's grace. These cities were an incredible display of God's grace. Anyone seeking refuge who was guilty of shedding innocent blood could be found there. They could find asylum there. They found mercy and favor in the walls of these cities. And so you can imagine that if you lived there, there would be a constant reminder to the extent of God's grace all around you. Right? Oh, man, what's happening there? 
oh, we're, we're bringing him, him, him in, and he's going to live with us now. Oh, why? Oh, man, he, he accidentally killed a person. And now we're going to provide him with refuge and safety. Like, imagine growing up there as a child and seeing, you know, random people coming in. It'd be this constant reminder of God's grace and mercy at play. Everywhere you turn. Everywhere you turn. And so we're responsible for shedding innocent blood as well. Right? We are responsible for shedding the blood of Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 53, we find... I mean, one of the most sobering passages in our entire Bible. Uh, for time's sake, we're, we're not going to turn there. But he was wounded for our tr- transgressions, right? He was bruised for our iniquities. Though we deserve the punishment, though we deserve judgment, though our hands are innocent, or that our hands are guilty of Christ's innocent blood, we were extended grace and mercy instead. This is the testimony of all those coming into a city of refuge. Next, we see that these cities were available for all in need. And this is a really, really cool point. You know, in, in verse 9, these cities, they weren't just for the nation of Israel, but for strangers and sojourners as well. Anybody that shed blood unawares. And so whether Gentile or Jew, this place was available and accessible for all. Man, how good is God? And this place that's holy, that's set apart, you think about these priests and how they would have nothing to do with with non-believers, with Gentiles, and yet this is a safe haven for anybody that came, anybody looking for it. And God has expended his mercy to all. He wasn't willing that any would perish. You know, God so loved the world. In Romans 10, 13, it says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so while the way is exclusive, it's only through Christ. Access is not. Whosoever shall call shall be saved, right? So the way, it's exclusive. It's only through Christ, but access is open to all. Whosoever shall call shall be saved. Whether Jew or Greek, there's no discrimination. God's refuge is available for all, and that's for all of you. If you're here today, God wants you to know that you can find peace, safety, protection, life, true purpose in him. No matter who you are, no matter what your religious background is, no matter where you came from, God is available to all through the person of Christ. Next, we see that access requires a a cry for help. And so whether for, for salvation or sanctification, God is nigh and waiting for us to invite him into our situation. Do you know that? No matter who you are, whether you're saved, whether you're a believer in salvation or sanctification, God is nigh. He's, he's near. He's nigh unto us. And he's just waiting for us to invite him into our situation. In verse 4, we see that the slayer enters the gate of the city. And the first thing that he does before entering into these cities of refuge is declare his case, declare his cause. Again, you can just picture him coming, sobbing, panting, desperate for breath. And he just says, I I need refuge. Help me. Help me. Salvation requires a cry for help. We need to understand that we are in desperate need. Right? You have to understand that you're in desperate need in order to be saved. In Matthew 14, verse 30, we see that Peter, you know, he's walking on the waters. And it's like one of these awesome passages in the Bible that so many people know. 
and he's walking on the waters. And in a moment, he withdraws his gaze from the person of Christ and he gets it on his circumstances. It says that he saw the wind boisterous and he was afraid and began to sink. And he cried out saying, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. And as soon as Peter realized that he was in trouble, he cried to Jesus to save him. And in verse 31, it tells us that immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him. Immediately. In Psalm 62, verse 8, it says, Trust in him at all times, ye people. Pour out your hearts before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Again, incredibly simple but profound in its application. We simply need to trust him at all times despite our circumstances, pour out our hearts before him. And Ephesians 4, it instructs us to be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. In James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, it says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. So when you're in need of refuge... Could we simply ask God for help? He is a mighty fortress. He is our help. He is the Lord of hosts. Next, those who find refuge are safe and secure. Those who find refuge are safe and secure. In verse 5, we find that the elders of the city, under no circumstances, are to turn over the slayer to the avenger of blood. And so once you reach the city, you are safe and secure. And as we compare this with Numbers 35, we find that as long as the slayer is in the city, they are protected. But if you ever wandered outside the city, he was at risk of death. And so the comfort for any believer is that we are secure in Christ. Once we put our hope, once we put our faith in the person of Christ, man, we, we are redeemed. We're the Lord's. We're secure in him. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. Romans chapter 8, 31 through 39. It lists all these things that, that maybe could, maybe would. No, nothing could separate us from the love of Christ. That's awesome. Romans 8, 31 through 39. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is incredible. It is a refuge because there is safety and there is shelter there. Right? There is an imminent threat. So here in Joshua, we find that God is not just interested in offering rest, but protection for us as well. And so the slayer would remain in these cities protected. But there is an, kind of an interesting point here. This is a side note for you, you students of the, the Bible. We see that the moment that they, no, we see that they are to stay in these cities until the death of the high priest. And so this is a really beautiful picture. This is a really beautiful type. And it's, it's twofold. And so I was geeking out on this because not too long ago on the postscript, uh, Dan Renault was on. And he just did a Bible study. And you guys were talking about uh, Abraham's bosom. 
and this really interesting kind of study uh, of Abraham's bosom. And this is one of, I think, one of the best types and pictures of Abraham's bosom in our Bible. And so this is a place where people could find temporary refuge until the death of the high priest, which is a picture and type of Jesus Christ. And at the death of the high priest, now they're free to return to their true home. You see that? And so just kind of a fun study for anybody studying the Bible. But for us as New Testament believers, uh, we too are saved by the life of the high priest and we're freed by his death. And so in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 25, it says, And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood, praise the Lord, wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for, for them, for us. This is the person of Christ. In Hebrews 6.20 it says, Whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made a high priest for e- forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so Jesus Christ is our high priest. And again, in his death, we find freedom. And so, just like Christ, these cities are nigh unto everyone that needs refuge. Just like Christ, these cities don't discriminate, whether Jew or Gentile, whether black, white, whether rich, poor, whether religious or heathen, it is a place that all can find refuge. This city is a place where people are saved from death, where priests reside and invite others to dwell with them. In these cities, people are safe and secure. In these cities, people are constantly reminded of God's grace. And so, yes, Christ is our refuge. And I'd be crazy not to to end by acknowledging that we are the body of Christ. And as much as we find refuge in the person of Christ, man, Kaya ought to be a place where others can experience the same refuge, where they can find salvation, where God's grace and mercy are accessible to them where a priesthood of believers can welcome those who are broken and weary to dwell amongst us. This is so, so important. Again, particularly with the beginning of the fall semester, we have to acknowledge who we are in Christ and walk accordingly, right? As the director of FOI, I see every day in the lives of our students, there's desperate need. Living in the Northeast, I see refugees that sought asylum in Kansas City all around me. Man, would they find a greater refuge in the person of Christ who has the power to save their soul? And so we're gonna end, uh, you know, just in prayer. I'm gonna pray for you. Uh, But if you're here today and you acknowledge that, man, this refuge, this peace, this freedom that you're talking about in the person of Christ, that is a foreign concept to me. I invite you to come forward. Like you can't sit through a message about the person of Christ, what he's done for us, how he's laid down his life for us and not wrestle with whether or not you're in him or not. And so if you're not sure if you have refuge in the person of Christ, I'd love to invite you forward as we uh, end in prayer and praise. Uh, And maybe, man, this is your home, this is your ministry and, and you aren't residing in a place of refuge. You don't feel peace. Come forward as well. And lastly, for, for all of you who view yourselves as leaders in this ministry, that view yourselves as ministers in the place of Kaya and MBT, man, God has called us to a great work. And we have to be on guard. We have to be at the gates of the city, ready to view and to receive those in need of refuge. And so whenever you come on a Sunday, whenever you come, come ready to minister. 
right? Be ready to be a, a royal priesthood of believers, ready to engage when people are in need of help. And so I'm going to close in prayer. Uh, if you have need, come forward. Lord, I do thank you for this time. I thank you for these cities, you know, such a, an interesting short passage, nine verses, and yet they're, they're jam-packed full of beautiful types and pictures. And Lord, um, man, I pray that anybody who doesn't know you uh, would have ears to hear that there's only true peace and only true refuge in the person of Christ. He has the power to forgive sins and to forgive our eternal souls. And so, Lord, uh, would you be at work in this midst, we pray. Amen. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.com.